0: The following presentation is the audio of a talk given by artist Mike Kelly in 1995. In case you don't know who he is, Mike Kelly was an American artist. His work involved found objects, textile banners, drawings, assemblage, collage, performance and video. He often worked collaboratively and had produced projects with artists Paul McCarthy, Tony and John Miller. Writing in the New York Times in 2012, Holland Cotter described the artist as one of the most influential American artists of the past quarter century, and a pungent commentator on American class, popular culture, and youthful rebellion. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. I only worked at the very beginning stage
1: of that project. And probably about a month or two ago, Kim invited me back to see this stuff before they boxed it up and mailed it off, and I was totally blown away. So I think we have a lot of fun stuff to see tonight. So, Mike Kelly. Hi, I'm really uh, glad you, uh, excited that you invited me to come and speak with you. I must admit, I'm a bit um, nervous. I'm not used to speaking so often to people outside of my field. And um, also, I think I brought too much stuff. And uh, so what I'll do, though, is I I think it's important to understand um, an artist's work, that you understand sort of where they're coming from and see a bit of background. And um, I'm the kind of person who likes to show more than less. So if it's too much, I'll just skip ahead to the projects I think might be more of interest to you. But nevertheless, I'm going to start with some very, very early works and kind of run, hopefully, quickly through, um, through that stuff till I, uh, get, because I'd like to talk more about my last four shows, but I don't think, it, 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 I think it's to understand it. Do I have to talk into it closer? No, it's fine. Um, so, uh, to give you a bit of my background, I was, I was trained in a very, very academic art situation. I was trained as a formalist painter in the Hans Hoffmann tradition. And um, that's going to be, I think, important, because later on it's, uh, the newest work kind of goes back and comments on that. So this is a kind of representative work from, um, I can't tell from this vantage point whether it's in focus or not. Is it? OK. Um, This is a work from 1975, called uh, Elegy to the Symbanese Liberation Army and it was done the year of the the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And it shows my interest in the time of trying to merge um, popular and actually um, subcultural imagery into a, a kind of formalist painting methodology that um, when I moved to Los Angeles to attend Cal Arts in graduate school, which was then the stronghold of conceptual art practice, I was severely trounced for doing. Since they had a kind of Adorno-esque attitude about popular culture, that there was no way that you could sort of use it critically at all, that you just had to keep away from it. And um, I decided in this very harsh environment was actually very good for me, in that I realized that a lot of my um, what I did was based on a certain given rule system, basically this formalist push-pull theory of Hoffman that Hoffman had um, come up with, and that it was it was baggage, and and my m- more of my interests were in um, these everyday kinds of popular forms and. So I decided to, do, to try to do work that was anonymous in a certain way, like formalism is anonymous, but um, much more generic. So I started working from how-to manuals, and I just started building things out of how-to manuals. And this was a chicken brooder. And so this is a thing for um, um, hatching eggs. And it's uh, from 1978. And then, from doing these kind of how-to, like home garage projects, I became interested in ones that were more esoteric, because I started getting bored with the kind of um, typical birdhouse, um, home shelf kind of thing. So this is called uh, Spirit Collector, and I started reading a lot of um, crackpot mystical material, and building machines out of those, And this one was supposed to collect the voices of um, the dead. And there's a tape recorder hooked to it. And then I would play these tapes back in a live uh, situation uh, as a kind of um, music concrete. Then um, these projects started getting more elaborate and more fanciful because I got bored with sticking to the rules of the uh, manuals. And I did a whole series of birdhouses, starting off with pretty straight ones. And this one is one of the ones that starts to get a little more elaborate. And it's called Gothic Birdhouse. And um, you can see why. And the top lifts off, actually. And you can see down inside and see the kind of spatial lift. And uh, this is, again, from 78. This is um, from 1982. And at this point, I started using these various um, objects that started getting more fanciful, or that had to be explained poetically, um, and doing short evenings where I would explain the sculptures to people. And I started then doing drawings that illustrated various um, aspects of this explanation process. And then I became interested in that and for example that in building objects that had triple or quadruple meanings, that um, I could through the evening uh, talk about them in different ways. And I became interested in showing a network of various um, drawings that um, illustrated these various explanations surrounding these objects. So this got me back into two-dimensional work after giving it up, because I had given up all the things I had been trained, like uh, formalist painting tropes, basically um, stand, a paint stand and texture and composition, and, and all of those um, hallmarks of formalist painting, and adopted this uh, straight, bland, uh, out-of-the-phone book, illustrational style. Um, and then presented them in terms of these networks that corresponded to these uh, explanatory pro, um, projects. And then so you can see that uh, they got more and more elaborate. This is an installation of Monkey Island from 1982 as it was insta- installed in the Sydney Biennial in 1984, where all of these, um, uh, not only did I start doing the drawings, but um, started stretching out into things that were became props. And the um, evenings of explanations started becoming less and less about the objects and more and more about language itself and how I could adopt various, uh, say, philosophical positions around a leitmotif. In this case, the leitmotif was uh, the monkey's ass. and and. Interpret that symbol in or that image in various ways throughout the evening and knowing that people have a limited attention span change um, basically my persona In my ex, uh, in my talking about it, uh, but knowing that people have short attention spans they wouldn't They won't see when I changed or inverted the, the discussion and so at the end of the evening people would just pick on the one that they agreed with. And so um, they could totally project it. And at the end of the evening, it was always great to have a lot of people come up and talk about the various ways in which I talked about it as if that's the only way I talked about it. And I became very interested in art as, um, as the pr- in produ- producing belief systems. And I started working in a um, General, uh, kind of a project manner where I would pick a leitmotif sometimes quite randomly like in this case the image of a monkey island at the zoo or uh, the monitor in the Merrimack or three valleys that I happen to pick randomly off a map and then develop a, a very complex set of relations about this in which um, the discussion of them would change through time. So then uh, the performances became longer and longer and more object, I mean more um, uh, language oriented and the props became less specific and, and things that were a little more generic and be used in a number of ways. This is Three Valleys from 1980 presented in uh, some loft space downtown. And then I started showing some of these props outside of the language, outside sort of the performance process uh, in kind of installations. This is a, um, an exhibition of the props from um, Three Valleys at Lace in 1980. Then this is a show I did around the same time. This is 1982 in uh, UC San Diego, where I built the set for the performance in the gallery space, and then performed it in the set, and then left it in a kind of state of disarray that um, happened through using these various materials. This is another performance of, of the same piece where I did it in a traditional theater space and did it in the set for the play that was in the run at the time. So this is from the Pilot Theater, 1982, and you can see the set was a kind of lo- you know um, hunting lodge. So this overlay of this, this group of objects within this already narrativized space had a kind of effect of doubling the narrative. And I was really interested in that. There was a whole section over to the side, which was the kitchen, where I did this whole slideshow on top of the kitchen. And the whole performance was like relegated to the lodge front room. And uh, I really liked using this inappropriate space. And how that colored the performance and performing it in different kinds of situations like that. Then um, I'd say for about eight or ten years, this kind of, I would do these long projects based on these logic systems that would culminate in these performances. And I, I, I did that because I thought the performance or doing something live or theatricalizing it was the way of bringing the thing to life as a kind of pseudo-reality uh, by enacting it or um, making the system complicated enough that I could actually start to believe it myself and then performing it in front of people. And then once that was done, I could abandon it and start from scratch again with a new belief system. But around this period, I think this is 19, uh, this is 1986, this is the pr- project Plato's Cave, Rothko's Chapel, Lincoln's Profile. I quit performing because I started to feel that I couldn't tell the difference between these constructed belief systems and my own belief systems anymore or that was a false distinction. And uh, I, I didn't really know how to do these performances anymore. But anyway, this is the last one and I did this as a collaboration with the rock band Sonic Youth and I just got them and what I tried to do was Even though the text had nothing to do with rock music, I staged it as a rock theater work using those conventions, but then changed them all around or or, or tried to fuck with them a little bit. For example, for much of the show, and a lot of the audience was a Sonic Youth audience, never saw the band because they were behind a curtain simply doing sound effects like if I'd move a table, they'd make table-moving sounds on their instruments. So it was treated much in the manner of kabuki. And, and then the stage would open up, and then there would be these typical rock kind of theatricalisms, like strutting about, and um, Jim Morrisonisms and things like that. And also, I'd built a model ramp out into the audience, so you could come out and directly confront the audience um, in the manner of a stage ramp model. And, uh, but anyway, this is the last, the last of the performance works. These are some examples of the black and white works um, that I did primarily in the 80s. This one is called Bad Acting from 1983. And oftentimes they illustrate kind of um, odd shifts of thinking. And, and this one was about um, applying the notion of bad acting to painting. That bad acting is um, determined by the fact that speakers never overlap. It's like a call and response, and so then good painting would um, necessarily have um, overlays. So I just use this kind of standardized um, landscape. Actually, it's off the cover of a jigsaw puzzle. Then, I started getting, for some reason, this reputation as being a bad boy artist. I don't know why, since I didn't think my works were particularly negative. But perhaps they had a certain kind of confrontational quality, or the fact that I used a lot of low cultural um, formats, even though I don't think I was producing low culture, like say the rock format, for example. So um, I started doing my works in good versions and evil twin versions so that the kind of positive and negative qualities would be expressed simultaneously. And I made the decisions about which ones were good and evil than other people, because I didn't see any of them as being good or evil. All these drawings are from the Plato's Cave, Rothko's Chapel, Lincoln's Profile series. Um, This is another work from that From that same project, and it's called um, Exploring. It's 1985. And when it was um, installed in the gallery, you had to crawl under it in order to get into this. uh, It's a painting of a cave with a kind of somewhat uh, sadistic text on top about, you know, if you want to learn something, you've got to kind of grovel and uh, here you had to crawl under the painting to get into the installation and the installation was this kind of very abstract um, kind of model of the what uh, it's this this work is called the um, trajectory of light in Plato's cave and uh, at this period I was getting sick of my own restriction to the black and white Illustrational style, which I had used for many years, and decided to try to use colors in various ways. And these giant monochrome panels were you. I used standard off the um, that that you ordered designer colors that had these beautiful names like um, fawn skin and plum wine and things like that. And then I had these uh, giant monochromes where the only difference between them was um, that the titles were shifted to other things that could be analogous to them. So one of them was of the four bodily fluids and one of them were certain, race, you know, skin tone things. And then uh, this one used the actual colors. This was done in the anchorage of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a giant, almost cathedral-like space that's on the Brooklyn side of the bridge where all the cables and everything hook in and um, it's, the architecture itself is so impressive. I didn't feel that there was any way to compete with it. And, and thus, I went for these very simple monochrome kind of things. And also, it's what spurred me to work with a lot of these cave metaphors and uh, architecture as cave and things like that. My interest in, in color in using colored materials, again, and also in the fact that in the art world at this time, which is the mid-80s, uh, there was a lot of focus on the art object at, um, in ec- purely in economic terms. It was called the com- commodity art period. And most of the works, like say, by people like um, Heim Steinbeck or Jeff Koons, were things they would buy directly out of the showroom and exhibit. So it was a lot about commodity fetishism, but always about the new. And so in contrast to this, there was was this argument going on that you could escape this discussion by um, going back to this old-fashioned idea of the gift, that um, gifts were free of this commodity problem, which I staunchly disagreed with because in my own experience gifts were highly loaded psychologically and had nothing nothing to do with freedom or escaping from capitalist ideology. They just reinforced it on the family level. So that for every gift you got, you were expected to pay back a certain amount of love. But unlike a car, you don't know how much that's worth. So you're put into a constant state of indentured servitude. So I started collecting homemade craft materials and uh, this is the first work I used, ma- using homemade craft materials, and it's called More Love Hours Than Can Ever Be Repaid. <laughs> in, in that, I think a lot of the worth of crafts, um, n- you know, in kind of relating to the arts and craft tradition is like, uh, worth is how much time it takes to produce them. So it's a very blue collar kind of wage earner mentality. And um, obviously this is more, um, more kind of time than you could ever possibly pay back in attention because it must be endless, endless hours of crocheting and sewing. And then I did a work at the same time. That one I decided to p- compose in a natural manner, a la Pollock, where um, the composition was democratic. But then I decided to make at the same time one where it was composed in a hierarchical um, um, forms. So this one's called plush kundalini and chakra set and the giant, uh, this big carnival snake represents the, um, um, you know, line of force going up through the body and then the various colored uh, lumps represent the chakras. And they're, they conform to the number and color of them and they're all made instead of, out of homemade um, craft materials, uh, commercially produced um, craft materials and thus this one was supposed to be seen as more male while the other one was supposed to be seen as um, uh, not phallic. Oh, I guess in the background, in the background you can see a number of cushy felt banners that I made to accompany these works and they're cut felt banners done sort of in the style of Sister Mary Carita. I don't know if you know who that is, but she was a 60s activist nun who adopted modernism a la, like say Matisse or Calder, to a kind of left-wing Christianity, and was one of the people involved in kind of bringing flower power culture into the church and folk masses and things like that. And I was always really interested in this kind of work. At around the same time, you saw a lot of architects doing modernist churches, which I always thought was a great contradiction of terms. How could you have something that was progressive and supposedly linked to something completely about um, submission? And these works embody that same contradiction and I was trying to play with that in a very overt way. But then uh, a lot of people, you know, seemed to think that they were kind of nostalgic or sixties oriented. So I did a version of them based on pinups at college campuses. So I just ripped off these posters from college campuses and I thought this would be the adult educated version rather than the blue collar feel good mystical version. And these are straight um, cut felt banners like you'd see hanging in a progressive church except they're um, college student mentality. So this one's somebody looking for an actor to play Pasolini in a student film. And this is for a um a radical um african American lawyer's um, talk and and then this one's somebody looking for a roommate and I did a number of these and they covered a lot of different kinds of uh, political and um, gender concerns these are then I started working with some of the Having these huge wads of homemade craft materials around, I became really interested in them as individual objects and realized that you never looked at them as objects formally, that you only ever looked at them as um, stand ins for what they represented. And that's always a generic human. And even if it's just a blob with eyes sewn on it, that you ignored that strange formality or actually that they were monstrous, or uh, decomposed, or fractured, or horrific. And yet, to the general, I uh, think, um, you know, middle class or lower class American, these things look very natural. And they would never ever consider them as equivalent to, um, say, expressionist or Picassoid um, distortion, because you don't see them as being distorted. You see them as being um, iconic. Um, as generically baby or perfect child. But anyway, so I started playing with those and, and trying to play with that and bring in notions of infant sexu- sexuality a la you know, the, you know, Freudian uh, and psychology and things like that. So this one, they're very, very simple. These are two yarn octopuses sewn together and turned upside down and it's called manly craft because it looks like a testicles. And this one's called Estral Star, two sock monkeys sewn together in a star formation. And there's a lot of other ones like this that are formalizations of these um, objects. Then I became interested in this problem of empathy with these objects, and how that you couldn't see them as models, or you couldn't see them as statues of of a human. You could only see them as kind of archetypally human. So I thought, Well, perhaps if I do um, life-size scale paintings of them, um, like kind of archeological paintings, that people would um, see them compositionally. So I did these drawings called the sack drawings, and I did them in three versions. One, a straight um, illustration of a doll, another one, a straight uh, depiction of a garbage bag, which I thought, if you didn't sew eyes on it, was pretty much equivalent to a doll. It's just, you know, a stuffed sack. And then third, a personified body part. So something overtly grotesque, um, because if you see a body part personified, it's not as easy as finding it lovable as a personified sack. So this is called Comedy and Tragedy Lung. And there was a number of these. And then um, I did this because after I after realized how much people empathize, empathize with these objects, I decided to play up that empathy by presenting them in a more theatrical context. So I did this series called the Arena Series. This is um, an installation at Metro Pictures in New York from 1990. And in the Arena Series, I um, was observing some children, actually it's a very interesting story, I'll just tell the story, it's an anecdote. I like anecdotes. It's a, um, a fellow teacher of mine at Arts Center had uh, brought her uh, young daughter to school and we were having a student um, review and to keep her daughter occupied she'd laid this blanket out on, on the floor with her toys and uh, we were having our review critiquing a student and I looked over and the uh, child was having her dolls um, do a critique. <laughs> and so I realized that all you had to do was set up a certain kind of boundary, like a blanket on the floor, and then any kind of object that laid within it would automatically automatically be um, um, seen within a narrative context. So that's what this body of work is about. And except what I was going for was a kind of crisis of, of empathy because the things I used were all used things that had taken from the thrift store, and obviously parents had taken away from the child because they'd gotten too dirty and could no longer represent perfect childhood and, and represented instead trash. Um, that I, I realized that this was all about proximity that if you saw these things from far away, you could empathize with them, but when you got close, you, couldn't, you could no longer empathize with them because when you, you saw how filthy they were. And I tried to play this up in the exhibitions by um, having, kind of sitting off to the side, like on a side table that didn't look like it was part of the exhibition, like cans of Lysol and um, Tick Killer and things like that so that people, you know, if they were looking around the gallery, would notice these things and become, uh, after their initial you know, um, embrace of the object, um, be repelled by them. This is a, one from this series called Blue Bunny, where I found actually a blanket and a bunny of the exact same fabric. They're very, very formal. Um, in their setups. This is a, uh, the one you saw before was in arena number one and the reason it has the ropes around it is it's a diptych but you know in a space it's generally it's hard to, you're used to seeing diptychs on a wall but on the floor you have a tendency to see them as two separate objects. So the, the ropes caused you to see them as a singular object. So this is arena number nine. This is arena number 10. Uh, autograph dogs which you can see has a kind of symmetrical composition and then I got interested in like well what if I just showed yarn um, on blankets and took all the color away and so I got these hospital blankets and just showed black and white yarn as if they were kind of schematic drawings and um, not to my surprise everybody saw these as being dolls that were um, gutted or eviscerated. <laughs> and so I was, I, I was, as I worked on this, I became increasingly, increasingly aware of just how much people had, had to not see these as material but see them as human. And to the point where the, when they saw a, wild, a wad of yarn, they instead saw a wad of intestines. Same here. And then I decided to get out of the doll and go into pets and uh, because they were a similar object of empathy and this one is called Mooner and it's 1990 and it's the leftovers um, from a dead pet and um, it's, a, it's really a tearjerker. <laughs> and personally it is too because it was a pet, I, you know, my pet in a way. Then I did this this Um, series called empathy displacement series where I um, did the uh, portraits of the dolls at a hundred at human scale but then had the original doll in a box in the front sealed where you couldn't see it and so uh, it was called empathy displacement second and third remove the first remove would be the um, the humanoid removed from the platonic archetype, then the second remove would be the two-dimensional, would be the doll, and the third remove would be the painting of the doll. So it was about these various levels of removal. And um, uh, people tended to empathize then with that which they couldn't see. That they couldn't empathize with the painting because um, presented pictorially the things were too grotesque. So instead, they felt sorry for the doll uh, in the box, which they perceived as dead. And then that led me to do a a number of other blanket works that were um, stuffed animals were laid on the floor covered with giant blankets where you only saw them as lumps. And uh, then people felt even more sorry for them. And then uh, I decided to push this empathy more by actually uh, having the animals talk and started writing plays for them. Because I find that people were doing that in the gallery. They'd go, oh, the bunny's doing this, or that somebody's doing that. And so I started writing these dialogues, but they were uh, generally very dry philosophical dialogues about empathy. And how the fact that, you know, about the the body of the of the writer and how the writer shouldn't be seen, and when the writer was seen, you didn't believe their writings anymore, and that language was omnipotent in that fashion, and it, it could work with stuffed animals, but you couldn't work with real actors, and so uh, people very much liked these works and uh, really did kind of get more involved in the philosophical discourse, I think, than they would if it was done. Um, like Dinner at Andres style. Or is that what that movie was called? Yeah. And then this is went towards the end of this project where I was getting very sick of this, where no matter what I did, I couldn't seem to cut through this empathy problem. I did this one where I reduced the animals to, to color, and these were commercially produced stuffed animals, to color and weight. And so they were presented in purely formal terms. They were on pulley systems where a certain amount of brown would balance another amount of brown on a pulley system. But then in contrast to their plush gushiness and kind of ability and also the fact that sewed in lumps they seemed, um, it was kind of horrific, oftentimes people compared them to like the lumps of bodies at concentration camps. That. I wanted to have something that seemed uh, very much in opposition to that. And so I designed these plastic wall units based on bathroom deodorizers, which are always kind of very modernist, space-age shapes, kind of aerodynamic. And I've always loved that. Whenever you go into a bathroom, you look, and you find it hidden away, like in a corner. It's always the most beautiful little modernist, Brancusi-esque sculpture, except its only function is to spray disinfectant. So I made them human size. they're about, you know, five and a half feet tall, and they spray from the pivot point, about crotch level, um, out deodorizer, at a random interval. So those walking around examining the lumps would intermittently be, kind of be sprayed in their own crotch with disinfectant.) <laughs> Then I got so sick of the whole thing that um, I realized there was nothing I could possibly do with this material that could ever cut through the cultural mythologies surrounding it, that I did this work, which is called Craft Morphology Flowchart, where I treated the um, objects simply in the manner that an archaeologist would in presenting the tools of a different culture. So the whole thing is presented on these cheap folding tables like a church bazaar all these various craft objects presented only in terms of their type of construction. And there was hundreds of them. And then they were accompanied by a photograph (laughs) of each one of them um, a la like an archaeological photograph of a, a bone fragment or something. But then again, it was a failure in that everybody saw it as a giant morgue of dolls. And I realized then this was a lost uh, cause. So then I decided that I was getting a lot of flack for this material because people tended to perceive it as me co-opting feminist art. Even though I didn't see it myself in those terms, I saw it as being about dealing with a certain kind of cultural production that I was quite familiar with based on my class, and um, but after you know hearing a lot of this, and I could understand what they were talking about, even though I thought it was strange that they couldn't st- see it instead of as a kind of cross-dressing, instead of a kind of essentialist practice, which was more what I was going for. Well, I mean I was going for more of a a schizophrenic or cross-dressing kind of feel. I decided to start doing works that were more o- overtly male in appearance, but how each one would be a different kind of male, or a, and that then the notion of a singular um, maleness would be questioned. And uh, I went back to the kind of... so I went back to woodworking, which is the real f- patriarchal activity. And this one's called, well, most of them are wood except for this one, which is a um, modernist um, site toilet. And I've always loved uh, Russian constructivist kiosks, information kiosks. And so I decided that I would turn one of these modernist um, formed toilets into an information kiosk. So it's called private address system and the toilet is miked so um, that it acts as a resonating chamber and it feedbacks and i put one of those car sub-bass uh, units in it so it vibrates like one of those um, hip-hop cars and it just you know very low vibrational tone i guess a kind of uh, scatological tone emanates from it this is a show from uh, Metro Pictures, 1992. At Metro Pictures is in New York. So, this is called Oregon Shed, and it's a conflation of a typical out of the out of the store a tool shed that you buy to put rakes and things in, with a uh, Reichian Oregon energy accumulator, and it should work. It's built to work. If you don't know what that is, I won't go into it as much too complicated. But generally, it's just to say that, you know, whoever built this was a Reikian. And then this one's called Kalima Bench. And it's a kind of shaker-style version of a colonics table. And again, it was built out of a how-to manual. Except I shifted it into a shaker-style, so it would be a bit more puritanical. This one's called kneading, kneading table. Kneading table, and it's a giant breadboard um, and alongside are a bunch of found um, um, folk breadboards and hazing paddles. So it's kind of like a rolfing table. And then this one's called primaling cabinet, and it's for primal therapy except I built it as a speaker cabinet so when you get inside and start the primal, it just comes out the front. And this one's called Torture Table. And it's built from the kind of generic um, descriptions of true crime literature about the basement. Um, What's the word? It's it's great. They always use the same terminology, um, like something like makeshift plywood torture table. This is a project. How much am I going in here? This is a project from um, 1988 at the University of Chicago, and it's called Pay for Your Pleasure, and it's the first public work I ever did. And I was invited to do this project in conjunction with an exhibition where I used the hallway of the university because uh, this university hallway led to this gallery that was not part of the university but situated within the university. And so I did this super graphics, it's more clear here, in this classroom um, hallway, so these were like where class languages, classes or something like that would be taught, where I had these um, very famous kind of philosophers and poets and writers, and each one was accompanied by a. A quotation that limited art production to criminality and so the students to go to their classrooms would have to pass through this thing and I did it in a spectral uh, kind of spectral um, color arrangement so it had when you first got out it looked like typical um, corporate super graphics like happy uplifting and when you went down it then you saw it was all this stuff about morals and then I showed it in every. uh, uh, I showed it with a painting by a local criminal, a murderer specifically. And this one is a painting by John Wayne Gacy, the famous Chicago mass murderer. And then accompanying this were um, collection boxes where you could uh, give money to victims' rights organizations and thus kind of pay off your um, pleasure in this romantic mixture of artist and criminal, and it was interesting to see which banners were stolen Like uh, the Rimbaud banner was stolen first. I'm sure it was in some punk kids dorm room within a week And then this same um, work I then did at uh, MOCA in the Forest of Signs Exhibition in 1989 and They're all strange sizes because in the actual space they had to conform between doors and had to have holes cut in them for drinking fountains and uh, alarm bells and all those kinds of things. But here we reorganized it so it worked in a more generic museum space. And uh, this one was accompanied by a a, a painting by a Los Angeles killer. Then in my travels, I had noticed going around to various countries. that all of these loading dock drawings were the same all over the world. And this is before fax machines, which means that all these drawings had to have been hand delivered or sent through the mail or with truckers. Which I thought was interesting because there's this whole subculture like this whole subworld of disseminating art production designed specifically for the workplace but not the upper level workplace, only where the lower level workers are and most of the jokes concern service job problems and and sexual um, material. So this is a very famous one. I'm sure you've all seen it, You Want It When? And then another one, which I saw in Australia, actually, in a loading dock, Why E.T.'s Neck Is So Long. So I started redrawing these. And always you could see that these things had been Xeroxed 20 or 40 times to the point where they were completely almost illegible. And I think, well, this is, that showed to me there's a huge investment in these things symbolically. And um, so I was asked to do an installation at the LA County Museum. And I decided to build a Russian-style workers' um, pavilion, but, in, but substitute kind of heroic image of the worker for these workers' drawings. And initially, I wanted to have a ribbon run from the shrine the employees-only door down into the um, area where the actual workers are with a battering ram in front of the door so that once the um, visitors to the museum, once they realized the class distinctions within the museum, would break down the door and join their fellow workers in the basement. But the museum wouldn't let me do that. So instead, I had to hang a carrot outside of the shrine. And um, then I had to set up a conflict between the workers and public. So it was, um, the carrot would draw people into the shrine and then the, the guards would have to throw them out. And so I thought, well, perhaps that would cause enough class conflict within the museum itself that would bubble over into the administrative areas. Then I did this work I was invited by Frank Gehry to do um, an irritating work for the Chiat Day Mojo Advertising Agency, as were a number of other artists. And Chiat Day's idea was that avant-garde artworks within the wor- irritating avant-garde artworks within the work environment would spur their workers to greater creativity that if they had an uncomfortable environment, they would necessarily be more creative or more conscious of themselves. So what I did was most I found most of the artists were picking the Gary-esque sections, the artsy sections of the building to work in. I picked a, a, a set of conference rooms with a copy room, a, a completely simple, bland island in the middle of the building that obviously Frank Gehry had not designed himself, but an underling had because it was um, completely bland and had no Gehryisms at all, and Gehryfied it so that it would um, its deconstructive aspects wouldn't be so much ornamental but actually disruptive to work conditions. So here you see the main boardroom of the uh, uh, on this floor where you would have kind of corporate meetings. And I have illustrated it with these workers' cartoons that would generally only be found down in the janitor's office. And and then I cut a picture window in the back, maybe the next slide is that, yes, so that you saw the copy coffee room for the lower workers. So that while you were having a kind of meeting, corporate meeting, you would see the people in there drinking coffee and making Xeroxes in this incredibly sloppy room. And then I took all of these various things and you know, super graphics around uh, each thing, uh, these jokes. And then, these are, then besides that, there were four individual meeting rooms. And what I did was cut, I cut portholes between each of the individual rooms so there, w- there was no privacy whatsoever, so that you'd always hear what the people in the next room were talking about. And then there's some typical kind of Garyisms like I put a drop ceiling in but left all the ceiling tile out, and things like that. So I don't I didn't see it so much as a critique of Gary, but an extension of Gary into the actual workplace conditions, because I actually um, pretty much, uh, especially when I was young. Um, Frank Gehry's architecture, I I was very fond of, especially his design for his own home, which I think is really one of the most beautiful treatments of a personal dwelling I've ever seen. Um, And then the the employees only door here, which is the coffee room, is locked. That's the only room you can't go in. So this is built at 100% scale at MoCA. In exactly the same proportions as it would have been at Chai de Mojo, because the Chai de check bounced and it was never actually built. Then I did this work with Paul McCarthy, um another Los Angeles artist, and um, we we decided I was very much interested in f- in film and how in film you experience it as a totality, despite the fact that it's composed of fragments. And I was very much interested especially in horror film um, because uh, they make fragments of humans at all different scales that you you experience as as one person in film and also all of the same scale in film. So we decided that we would um, build a film set and film uh, the story Heidi on it. And if you don't know the story, it's a simple kind of morality story about the evils of the city, of an um, urban environment, because there's a sick girl down in Frankfurt who's cured by being taken up into the Alps and put into this um, natural environment, rustic environment. And I based my contribution to this project on the writings of Adolf Loos, who was completely against that, like in his, his famous essay called um, ornament and criminality. He, he um, equates folk ornament and all architectural ornament, in general, with depravity and, and likens it to tattooing, and um, so this set is a conflation of a alpine cabin, a la Hollywood, and a um, early modernist bedroom from the teens by Lowe's. And also, to enter the modernist bedroom, you go to the American Bar, which is a bar, a modernist bar that uh, Loos designed in Vienna and named it the American Bar because at that time, America was the most advanced in modernist ar- uh, architectural uh, practice. So this is uh, uh, the main uh, room of the uh, Heidi House, as it's called. Actually, its full name is midlife crisis trauma setter, and media engram ag reaction release zone. And this is the, the hayloft where you see these various pieces. And all of these dummies and partial figures were used, along with actors, to, per- uh, to portray the various characters in a film we shot on this set. And this is the Los um, bedroom with Clara, the sick girl from Frankfurt. So Loos came to represent the urbans of, uh, urban sickness. <clears throat> so it was an inversion of Lose's own um, um, dichotomy. This is the goat, and, and this is the attic where all the stuff was stored. So all of these, this, this set actually was the set, and all the things in it were the props in the production of a film where all of these things were used, except they were used incorrectly, so you could always tell they were partial figures, and they never added up. And there was two, per, two people playing the same figure on stage, like when one was a dummy or a leg, or something like this. So it was, it was this kind of thing. Uh, this is complicated. I think I'll skip it. I'm, I'm going a little overboard here. So the next tray, you know, I'll try to go a little faster. And get to my newest project. In fact, I think I'll just skip right to it. I hope, you know, you'll take this all in neurologically, don't worry. Okay, um, I'm going to go back one here. After doing, after having my retrospective, I became painfully conscious of myself as a historical construct and um, decided that I had to start screwing with that or I was dead, I was washed up, that I would be the stuffed animal artist forever. So, I went back to the paintings I did in college and started painting on them again. Not to make them look different, but to relearn my collegiate skills. So it was like going home in shame. Like going back to live in your own bedroom. And um, so I tried to get to the point where I could paint on these paintings and you couldn't tell the difference. And then I did a a series of paintings called The thirteen seasons were based on the same manner of painting, and um, I decided to use this oval format because it evokes the mirror and reflection, and also timelessness—that is, circular circularity. And the subject matter was random; it was just randomly cut out of um, a gift catalog, and uh, And then once the paintings were all done, I arranged them in how they might be read in terms of uh, seasonal progression, starting with the new year in spring and ending up in fall. So that the set of paintings could be seen as a metaphor and kind of old painting um, style, uh, kind of, uh, not style, but it was a tactic of of showing the seasons as uh, symbolic of aging. So this one is, I think, Birth of the New Year. And this one is called Fecundity. And this one is, um what's limp in 3D is erect in 2D. Uh, The Dawning of Sexuality, Uh, Summer's Rage, Fall, The Descent, Cactus Flower, which if you don't know is a terrible movie with Walter Matthau and Goldie Hawn about a a spring-winter relationship. Uh, Snow on the Temples, the decay of year-end, the giving old man, death, and art. And art is a kind of trompe l'oeil painting a la harnette of a, a wood wall with a poster on it and the poster is for a collegiate effigy hanging contest. So um, after doing that overtly regressive kind of project, I started thinking about my own art training as a form of mental abuse. And I became really, um, not seriously, so I, 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 be, I, became, I was really fascinated with the rise of the false memory syndrome uh, argument in America. And basically, in really simplistic terms, false memory syndrome is depend, is based on the idea that um, almost all memory is factual, and that most neurotic symptoms are based on repressed memories of abuse. And this it's caused a huge um, war in the psycho, psychological community between those who, who sort of believe that um, most memory is true and those who and um, don't, that it's, it's, it can be uh, fictive. And I think as an artist, when you see something that's about the importance of fiction or representation become such a major issue, I, I can't help become uh, fascinated with it. So, and this, this syndrome is, is is not only uh, dominant in the psychoanalytic world, it's also huge in UFOlogy, because the dominant form uh, literature of UFOlogy is about abduction and screen memory, and also in um, the whole satanic conspiracy uh, theory surrounding, um, well, it's kind of Christian conspiracy theory about the um, satanic organized satanic groups that are kind of running the government and things like that. And there's a lot of like kidnapping and abuse and it's covered up with um, false memories. And I decided then in learning, relearning my old indoctrination was a way of recovering the memory of my own abuse so that I could cure myself of it. And in doing that, I had to remember, in, um, in these kind of 12-step exercises, the places in which this abuse happened. And that led me to an interest in the architecture of abuse. So I decided to build every school I ever went to from memory to see what I couldn't remember. Because the parts that I couldn't remember were ob- would obviously, in this model, have been repressed, and that would be the site of trauma. And when I started building the models, I realized I couldn't remember 80% of the space, which meant that my um, my abuse was huge. So anyway, this is the model, and this shows it in scale. And I'll just run through it very quickly. This is my latest show. It's from this year. This shows the model. in Underneath it is a mattress you can lay on to see the sublevel, because the underground in this kind of um, mythology is like a lot of romantic uh, discussions of architecture, the underground is the image of like the repressed or the base or the primal and and uh, and and say, like in the McMartin preschool um, case there was, they actually had ar- an archaeological dig to try to find these hidden tunnels and chambers that supposedly existed under the preschool, as described by all the um, children. And um, there's still this huge debate going on about whether these existed or didn't exist based on the archaeological evidence. So anyway, I wanted to get that sense of underground here uh, under the table. This piece is called Entryway, and it's, um, it's not only an entryway to the city. Um, I'm, I don't know, these aren't so common anymore, but you're probably familiar. When you drive into small towns, you see these signs where they have all the service organizations on them that are in the town. So it's those kind of service organizations plus ones that are somewhat um, inappropriate, like uh, anarchist parties and... Things like that, but the composition is based on the genealogical chart of my immediate family. So there's this convergence. In the, in the old fashioned you know, way of linking the arch- architecture to the body or an anthropomorphized architecture, I was playing with that overtly in this project. This is a companion work to the model which is supposed to be a detail of the gymnasium floor. And it's called Gauntlet. And it's, um, it looks like um, team logos, but they've been slightly um, detoured. Then I'll just go through these uh, pictures of the model. My initial idea was to build all of the um, buildings and then treat them a la push-pull paint, push painting as elements to compose with, I would I'd cut and paste them, I would compose them into a new Uber building. And I very much was interested in the kind of early modernist or idea of the you know total artwork, where the architecture like say like Rudolf Steiner's architecture or Arcasanti, where the building and every aesthetic output was linked. And I wanted this to be like that, except that the, um, overlying, the, under, the underlying belief system would be um, push-pull theory. And so eventually, that, so that means not only developing a painting practice, but also perhaps a musical practice, and definitely a theater practice, because I'm going to do a, a major uh, theater work or a ritual, you know, more in the Steiner kind of terms where if you have a building like this that's a kind of living space, um, public space, showing space, religious space, you have to have a unifying ritual. And a ritual space, a temple in the center, or theater. And, And so I'm working on that now. And the gymnasium is going to be the space of that. And I was thinking about it in relation to the high school, where the high school is where those kinds of ritualized activities always took place, like all these carnivalesque activities that were inversions of power, like say, um, Donkey Basketball Day, where you know the students try to play basketball on donkeys, and it's teachers versus students, and there's cross-dressing, and there's all this kind of stuff that are typical carnivalesque inversions of power. But anyway, I gave up this kind of cut and paste idea because I found that in the treatment of the individual models themselves, um, that they had to be so radically altered, not only to incorporate the parts I forgot, but also to reveal those parts, to explode them, to cut away that um, that simple proximity was, compos- was was enough focus on composition because they had so much interior composition. And I wanted people to focus. We it had to explode a lot of the buildings. Like we had to lift the roofs up, to so you could see the um, floor plans inside. And so a lot of the buildings, which were in most cases very cheap, frumpy institutional architecture, started looking like kind of very nicely designed modernist architecture. And that was something I didn't expect, really. But I liked that very much. Uh, This is CalArts with all its various cutaways and things. And then I just want to show you a few things that I started to think about at the time. Oh, thank you. Is it working now? Yeah, good. I started thinking a lot in doing this because I didn't realize how important the cutaways and how much a part of the aesthetic the cutaways and explosions would be because I was thinking it, initially it would be more about blocks of building glued together in a kind of tension um, a la hoffman um, formalism. But instead it became much more about cutaways and revealing. And so I started thinking about it in relation to a lot of deconstructivist practices of various artists. So I just wanted to show a few of those things that I liked. This is Gordon Matta-Clark, Splitting Four Corners of 1974. It's a, it's a home in New Jersey that he cut in half so that it fell on the center point into this kind of beautiful perfect symmetrical split. And then in, from the interior, he cut out the four corners so that when you inside, um, uh, you, when you look in the four corners of the home, you can see right out through them, so the space is opened up, in, in a couple of, uh, in a number of interesting ways, which I think is especially pertinent to the home, because the home is the kind of site of of interiority and domesticity, and transparency doesn't function well in the home. And this is another work by Gordon Matter Clark, not done in a, a domestic space, but done in a, a more public space, an old building that was in Paris when they were tearing down all the um, old buildings in proximity to the um, Pompidou Center. This is called um, um, Conical Intersect of 1975, where a giant spiralesque cone is cut directly into the building. And uh, this is inside the building where you can look through this, where it's large on the inside, and like a point of light, it diminishes in negative going in. And that you could look through this hole once you're inside and see various parts of the city from various vantage points. Like on one side, the Pompidou Center, which was in construction at that time, and in other places, you know, other things. This is a work by Dan Graham. Um, called Video Projection Outside Home, where um, the television station being watched at the time inside the house was projected out onto the street, sort of like the mailbox. And what I like about this work is even though it kind of intimates some kind of um, deconstruction in the service of the political, like the inside of the house is being revealed to the public, all they're really seeing is the same thing they see every day. And, and so, unlike a lot of, um, of this kind of destruct, uh, deconstructive material that seems to put the artist in this kind of teacherly role of teaching, of showing people their evil ways, this one just r- reveals what everybody already knows. In con- in, I think in contrast to this work by Michael Asher from 1974, Project for the Claire Copley Gallery, Um, where he took out the dividing wall that separated the art showing space from the business space. And of course, I think it has this huge intimation about, um, well, this is the secret dirty part of the gallery where money is handled and all of that, which I find, um, though I love this work, I I, I staunchly disagree with an artwork that um, kind of intimates the role of the artist as the um, mystic revealer of truth, to quote Bruce Nauman. Oh, and these are a couple of uh, cartoons of inappropriate transparency. So this is from, from Sex to Sexty magazine, 1969, a modernist glass um, a bathroom. I mean, so it shows how modernist, um, the kind of uh, of idealized, I'm not interested in this kind of idealized transparency and and thus like when people make jokes about modernist transparency it's always in terms of like revealing things that people don't want to be revealed because they want their private space. And so there's a lot of scatological humor about transparency. Here's another one. This is a really beautiful book by Frank O'Bean from 1952 called John's the Outhouse Beautiful. And it's, uh, he's obviously an architect, an architect because the drawings are really beautiful and, and the things, but they're all designs for uh, um, uh, outhouses and toilets that in, um, involve transparency. So this one's called The Pantagon, obviously a joke on the Panoptagon. And it's designed for a military site so, that the various ranks, like general, uh, sergeant, uh, and private, all uh, have to go to the bathroom in this same uh, pan- <laughs> pentagonal formation, and the hierarchy is diffused by the fact that they can see through the glass walls. And um, the last slide I want to show is of the bottled city of Candor which is in Superman's uh, Fortress of Solitude, and which I'm not sure, but it's from his home planet. And it, it represents, to me, um, the site, uh, architecture is memory, where, at, where you know this guy, not only in the Fortress of Solitude, which is cut off from everybody and is itself like a kind of architectural um, fortress, has within it a secondary fortress of his own past, sealed up in a vacuum where it never, never goes away, and where his parents and his past exif- exist in uh, forever and um, in a miniaturized state, which is, I think, the general metaphor for the past and for the, um, say, like the dollhouse um, of, of timelessness, and this is like the past that he can never give up and uh, which haunts him sealed there in the lead lined room. So that's it. I'm going to stop here. So if, if you have any questions, um, I'd be willing to take a few before it gets too late, yeah. How well, do the children always want, Well, the children always want to play with them, but the parents don't because they're very dirty. and. Um, I think that revealed right there a schism between the use function between the stuffed animal for the adult and for the child because i think anybody who's been around children knows that young children like dirty things and the more dirty they get the more they like them but that's that's an opposition to the parents who like the things to represent the child in a more clean um, idealized state and so that's why i think thrift stores are full of dirty um old stuffed animals and uh so yeah the children the children wanted to play with them and the parents wanted to keep them away from them and not only because of just the propriety of the gallery but i think because they're filthy anything else yeah In what? She asked how I position myself um, in relation to the view or in the readability of the art. I, I don't know exactly what you mean, but I think since my work uses a lot of, um, on the surface, uh, common and social conventions, and I tend to work in terms of public language, that there is at least on the surface of my work um, an invitation to enter it. And um, what happens is then once you enter it, you realize where it perhaps doesn't conform to the norm. And, and then it's up to the person, uh, st- themselves or subjectively to decide whether they agree with it or don't agree with it. But I don't think my work is opaque. I think my work allows people to understand at least on some level what the issues are even if I don't come out and and spell out what my position is. That's always been what I've wanted, that I wanted a work that wasn't opaque or about constant deferment or about giving the viewer complete freedom to determine what it's about, but that we know what we're discussing, but there's room for disagreement. Because I know that, you know, a lot of people look at my work and they're, they're really incensed by it, because I'm working with a lot of uh, folk uh, kinds of production, which um, to many people represents culture. And culture, traditional culture that that shouldn't be screwed around with, and into other people, you know, I think my work represents more than it does simply just some kind of uh, knee-jerk um, parody, and I don't I don't want it to be either thing. You know, I I want it to be more of a setting up a problem. There's an implied kind of discourse going on. Yeah? Anything else? Yeah? He asked if the the state of the counterculture was any different than it was 20 years ago, you said? So that would be what? What decade would that be? The 70s? No. <laughs> I don't see any difference. Because I, I, see the, I see counterculture now, after the death of the modernist belief in the efficacy of uh, radical action, to be primarily symbolic and carnivalesque, which is what I think it was all of the time. So I think in actuality, there's not a lot of difference between um, avant-garde activity now and, say, in the turn of the century. I think people think about it differently. I don't think people expect that um, changing the language of uh, forms that surround you necessarily affects culture uh, in a big way, at least immediately. It's a much slower process. It's one about initiating discourse rather than um, causing the colla- immediate collapse of a, of, of a contrary system. Um, I don't know. I still believe in the uh, that cu- countercultural activity has a has a function. I think it's a lot more problematized now because I think it's harder for people to have um, to be so dreamy about it. That people sort of know it's a failure right away, and they have to continue on uh, despite that fact. So. Um, I guess that's my answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah? His his what? Um, oh. That's a very complicated question, but it was basically about my relation to Adorno-esque um, philosophy. And you know, we went into something about Benjamin Berlin, but I, I'm not I'm not familiar with that particular project of, of Benjamin's. But um, I mean, does does that relate somewhat to his notion of like the perpetual museum or the freezing? Oh, well, my, my example about Adorno-esque um, kind of treatment of popular culture was simply um, that when I was in school, he was used as a kind of um, voice of authority to say that all popular culture was the same, sort of like Green, Greenberg's discussion of kitsch. And so that there was nothing you could do with it, which is really, say, in contradiction to, like, say, the um, the uh, situationalist notion of detournement or however you say it. I don't know French, but um, just just that you know, if I was to follow Adorno's uh, teachings, I could have never done any of my work. Because I, I, I wouldn't have been able to deal with popular culture. And that's what we live in now. We don't live in an era where there's a differentiation between high culture and low culture. Um, as far as its its effect on the model, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Yeah? She asked whether working on this model has changed how I might um, alter how I treat this uh, spatial usage and performance, and the only only way really was that I was thinking of using a given space, um, the space of a of a of a high school or uh, gymnasium, uh, in that I think to do something like what I want to do would make more sense in a in a real space. Um, but then I, I always thought about um, spatiality in relation to my performances and in my exhibitions. I didn't talk about this, but in the early exhibitions that were the kind of network, networking of drawings and things, I always positioned them in the room, not in typical hanging style and not even in typical salon style. But I hung them to accentuate the architecture, like I'd hang them on the door jams, or I'd hang them in the corner where the walls met, or I'd run the line from the door jamb across to the wall and hang it where it met. So all the hanging of the artworks completely mirrored the architectural formation of the room. And so that kind of um, consciousness of enclosure was always something that was very important to me. Um, I haven't thought so much. About this new theater work, except I think it really should conform to the standard folk model. And it should be in a gymnasium and it should be produced in that manner. So, in actuality, it's much simpler than the spatiality or the spatial problems of a lot of my earlier performances that had to be done in weird given spaces where I had to like do something that was kind of inappropriate to the space and try to not deny the space a la traditional theater, like pretend it wasn't there. Because I always wanted the viewer to be very conscious of the space in which they were sitting, watching the performances, so that, so that they never fell into the kind of filmic or theatrical position of the passive viewer looking through the fourth wall. I never wanted that. And so I always tried to um, energize the given space in a way that was sometimes quite in contradiction to the performance, like the one that was done on the um, theater set. Like, I could have taken the set down. Instead, I decided to work on the pre-given set. Because theaters just make this neutral space. Yeah? I guess that's it. Thanks.
0: Visit White Hot Magazine online, White Hop Magazine on Instagram, and at New York Becker on Instagram. See you around the art world.